I guess that's me. I wasn't even ready to go yet. Sure, we don't have any more announcements. There's so much going on for, for Christmas. Um, one of the things I'll, I'll mention right at the outset here before we jump into the sermon is that uh, we are going to have a time for a question and answer period at the end of the sermon. Uh, and, and so uh, the slide that will be out here uh, is going to come back up when we're wrapping up our time together. So don't worry about it right now necessarily. Uh, the way that we've done sermon and Q&A before is, is we can do it anonymously. And so that is, is often the easiest way to ensure that you feel free and comfortable to ask a question you may have. And I'll just uh, say this at the outset because it doesn't have to be a question that comes up for this sermon in particular. I'm opening it up to anything that we've talked about here during the month of November during our sermon series on Give Church a Second Chance. If there is a question that has come up during that time, feel free to, um, to ask it at that time. So again, this will come up again at the end of our, uh, of our service where we have that sermon Q&A time. I just want to whet your appetite so you can be thinking about these things as we learn together. But before we jump into that, Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Let's ask God's blessing on our learning time. Father God, it is again good to gather as your people. It's good to see the snow on the ground and good to be gearing up towards Christmas. Father, I pray that as we look forward to those things and as we come from many different types of weeks and and busyness, that you would help us be present here with you uh, today as we worship you and as we seek to learn from your word God, I pray that your spirit would just be invited here and that we would be able to engage with your word in humility so that what we learn together would would really truly have an impact on how we live in our relationship with you. We ask your time and your blessing on this as another act of worship as we learn together. We pray this all in your name. Amen. So it's a bit hard for me to believe that we are already at the end of our focus time here in November where we've talked about giving church a second chance, looking to Scripture to give us a good reason, a good solid biblical motivation of why, even if we've had some difficulties in church in the past, why we ought to consider engaging or re-engaging with church in the present and in the future. It began at the beginning of November with us talking about how the church is a hospital, And how unfortunately, just like a physical hospital, sometimes the place that's designed for healing can actually make you sick. And we've dug deep into God's word to discover that even if that has been true for you in the past, that the church is still uniquely suited and called to be a place of spiritual healing. And that when you are in a church community, that that often even those times where you need physical or emotional or spiritual healing, you might not even be able to have the strength, energy, or faith to ask or pray for that healing. The church community around you can do that for you. We also looked how church is a community and grieved the fact that sometimes this place designed for community can leave people feeling lonely. And how there is this extra loneliness that comes with being lost in a crowd. And yet, as we again went to God's word, we discovered that two are better than one. And that community is still a place, uh, the church can still be a place to have spiritual community. And where we as a team can accomplish more for God's kingdom than we can if we live our faith individually. And then last week, uh, we looked at, sorry, I, uh, I got ahead of myself. Church's community was playing, finding connection even if you're lonely. Last week, we looked at church as a team. We can accomplish more together uh, for God's kingdom than if we are divided or if we are alone. And this morning, we're going to take a look at the theme or the topic of hypocrisy and ask ourselves the question, what happens when the place designed for holiness becomes hypocritical or proves itself to be hypocritical? 
What do we mean by hypocrisy? Well, there's a very simple understanding of it. Hypocrisy is saying or believing one thing and then acting in a different or opposite manner. We, we preach this, but we practice something different. That is being hypocritical. And of all the lists of these different imperfections and the dangers that we see sometimes present in the church, hypocrisy is perhaps the most dangerous of all because it erodes the authenticity of our faith. It erodes the authenticity of what we believe. It also chips away from the trust that we want to build with one another and the trust that we want to build in our community and the world around us. Ultimately, hypocrisy will lead people farther away from the good news of Jesus Christ, which is, again, contrary to what we are hoping to accomplish together as a church. Now, does this mean that the church is called to be completely and utterly perfect? Are we somehow trying to be the pinnacle of moral perfection? Well, of course not. This is also not true. We've talked about how the church is a hospital. It is a place where we can be sick and look for healing together. And so if we are trying to avoid hypocrisy by being morally perfect, then we will truly fail. There is this tension or balance that we are trying to navigate as Christians together. The truth is that when we trust in Jesus, he does something profound where he takes our old self and and he makes us new. And from that moment onward, we are a new creation transformed by Jesus. And yet as we live out this reality as new creations in Jesus, we also realize we are never a finished product. We have been transformed, but we are being made perfect by Jesus Christ. Holiness is not about being a finished product. It's not about always being perfect. It is a process. We see Paul talk about this a few different places. And one example is in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1. The context of this verse is he's talking about us as the people of God being the temple of the living and holy God. He says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That same fear that Taylor reminded us of earlier. We are being brought to completion. We are on a journey of holiness. And it will be an imperfect journey. It won't necessarily be a straight line. There will be moments And sometimes repeated moments in our life in which we will be hypocritical, where in our quest for holiness, this work that God is doing in our life, we will sometimes say one thing and act in a different manner. We will make mistakes. I have preached many sermons here in my four plus years at Stony Brook, and I have not been perfect at practicing everything that I've preached. And you can decide, does that make me a hypocrite? Does it undermine my authority and my trust? And yes, sometimes we need to take this seriously, but we also recognize that none of us do this perfectly. That our journey of holiness will be one that will sometimes include falling short and falling down. So then the question we all need to ask ourselves is this. How is hypocrisy and the danger of hypocrisy different than our imperfect journey of holiness? And we need to dig deeper into how Jesus confronted religious hypocrisy and see what he believes were the root causes that need to be brought to light. And so I'm going to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. And this is an interaction with Jesus confronting the religious leaders of his time, specifically for religious hypocrisy. And then I think through this passage, 
we can unpack a little bit more nuanced way what the difference is between hypocrisy and our imperfections on our journey for holiness. Matthew 23. And this is going to be our foundation. We're going to draw out the lessons from Matthew 23. And there'll be many other companion passages. And so there's a few more uh, quotes from Scripture today than normal. I'd encourage you just to keep your Bible open to Matthew 23 and then uh, just allow the other passages to be displayed on screen. The last thing we need to get right as we go through these lessons together is that this is a self-evaluation of hypocrisy and holiness. This is not an opportunity for you to elbow your spouse in the ribs or to keep glancing sideways at your kids or to look around the church. No, this is a log-before-spec sermon. It's a self-evaluation of hypocrisy and holiness in your own life. Let's learn these things from Jesus together, starting in Matthew 23, verse 1 to 4. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. Now we're talking about hypocrisy. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. The first accusation that Jesus makes against the the Pharisees, the first lesson he teaches is that hypocrisy is focused on self, while this imperfect pursuit of holiness is focused on others. The Pharisees were using their authority to lay heavy burdens on others and then reap rewards themselves. Well, what were these burdens? The Pharisees were very motivated to keep the law that had been given to them, and this was not in and of itself a bad motive. But one of the things that they had done was they had all the rules of the law as outlined in the Hebrew Scriptures, and they had created a fence around the law. So to make sure that I don't accidentally get too close to breaking the law, I'll keep extra rules in addition to safeguard myself. So if we were to observe the Sabbath starting at 6 p.m. on Friday, then we were going to give you the additional rule to start observing it at 4 p.m. so that you accidentally don't ever go too far. But there were hundreds of all of these extra rules, and they were burdensome on the people. And yet the Pharisees had no problem laying this burden on others, and they did nothing to help alleviate this burden because the reward for them was continued power and influence and authority in the life of the Jews of the time. So they were adding this burden, reaping the rewards, and living out their religion in a way that served themselves. And at the core, hypocrisy is self-centered. When our actions are dictated by what serves us in any given situation, then this reveals to us a hypocritical heart. Not all of us are in a position of leadership like the Pharisees would have been. But of course, there are moments in which we can act in a way that serves us and reveals hypocrisy. It reminds me of a time when I was in high school, which was, yes, a very long time ago. And there was a friend of mine who was trying very hard to be popular. And I thought he was just another one of these popular kids. I wouldn't have guessed by his attitudes and actions and words that he was a Christian in any sense. And then I was getting in this conversation where I was trying to defend Christian music to my other friends at school. And I was trying to use the example of DC Talk being a very cool band. And now you're getting a sense of just how long ago I was in high school. And then this friend of mine, who I had no idea was a Christian, leans over to me and whispers, I kind of believe that's true, especially that song, JF. Oh, you mean Jesus Freak? 
that song about not being afraid to let people know that you love Jesus. He was someone who was, his actions were dictated by what would suit him in any given situation. And it wasn't so much his actions, but the heart behind them that revealed hypocrisy. Where holiness, even as we are imperfect, really shows that we ought to be focused on others. And this was something that Jesus did not want to leave unnoticed by his disciples. So against this backdrop of the religious leaders using their authority to be burdensome on others and to have them serve them, Jesus goes and does something different. Near the end of his time with his disciples, in the Gospel of John chapter 13, he goes and he washes his disciples' feet. And this drives them crazy because that was just not how religious authority worked. He was clearly their Lord, their rabbi, their master. Why would he serve them? Jesus does this because he is showing something new. He is showing the difference between holiness and hypocrisy. And after he finishes washing his disciples' feet, he describes it to them this way in John 13, 12. He had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place. He said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. No longer should your religious actions be self-serving. They should be focused on others. Do not burden others. Instead, serve them. And this was countercultural and difficult for the disciples to accept for all the reasons why Jesus has already highlighted for the attitudes of the Pharisees of the day. The heart of holiness is turned towards others. And we need to ask ourselves, what serves others in any given situation instead of what serves our, me, what serves myself? What eases their burden instead of adding to it? During some time in, in my pastoral training, I can't remember if it was a, a book I read or a class I took or a workshop, it was, advice was given to me that was good advice. Never ask anyone to do something that you yourself would be unwilling to do. So if you need to all stack chairs, make sure you stack chairs. If you need to uh, clean, clean up a mess and clean up that mess. And I have tried to apply this in my ministry in every area except for nursery. I think that's got to be an exception, Right? Shout out to all of you who are in the nursery right now looking after other people's little kids. There is a special place in heaven for you. But there is this notion, whether you are a leader or a pastor or, or just a member of the church, that we ought to be living in a way focused on others, serving others, not focused on self. That is one of the big differences in a heart of hypocrisy or a heart of holiness. And yet Jesus just uses this as a launching point to really go after the religious leaders of his day. And he goes on to teach that hypocrisy is focused on the kingdom of earth, the here and now, while holiness is focused on the kingdom of heaven. This point he makes a little later on in Matthew 23, verses 13 and following. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte or a convert. And when he becomes a convert, <laughs> you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. And at this point, we need to know that Jesus is not 
playing with kid gloves anymore. He really has something harsh to say to those leaders. And what is he saying? He's saying, you have it all wrong. You're going about this in such a way that's not leading people closer to God, but farther away from him. Your priorities are not about this eternal relationship with your creator, but about the here and now. You see, the religious leaders were determined to make the Jewish religion perfect for that day in this world. It'd be the best earthly religion possible. We're going to follow the law perfectly here. We're going to obey perfectly. We're going to look perfect today. But in the process, they lost sight of the eternal kingdom of heaven and what really matters. Because it's not about how much theology you know. It's not about how many rules you keep or how pure your group can be. It's about the relationship with God. The kingdom of heaven looks different. And when we keep the kingdom of heaven in our view, then our actions will look different as well. So I was thinking about what a companion passage would be to this warning of of just being so good at being religious that we actually lead people farther away from God instead of closer to them. And I came up with an interesting one, and hopefully you'll understand the connection. This is in Matthew 19, verses 13 and 14. And Jesus is teaching And during this time, then children were brought to him, and he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. So Jesus sees what the teachers are doing and the burden that they're placing and this perfection that they're expecting. And he says, that's not the kingdom of heaven. And then when he's teaching... People want to bring these kids to him who are going to be loud and chaotic and annoying. And they're not going to keep up the religious norms. They don't know how to act. It's going to be messy. And the religious propriety to keep up niceties would say that kids need to go and sit in the back. They can't come to Jesus. That's not his priority. He says, that's exactly my priority. That is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. Not only are they allowed, But the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Our journey of holiness calls us to this childlike faith, which is highlighted by simple trust, simple refuge, and simple rest, almost like a sick child resting in the arms of a parent. I felt bad for my youngest son, Silas, who's just in kindergarten this fall, and you get to learn lots of things in kindergarten, namely how many viruses are at school. He has had them all. Never been that sick, but constantly fighting something off. And when he does feel at his worst, and if he wakes up in the night, the number one place he wants to be is in our room, in our bed. And really, he wants to be with his mom. He wants to be in her arms, snuggled up next to her. And that is this picture of simple trust and refuge and rest. That is this picture of the childlike faith that Jesus says is a hallmark of the kingdom of heaven. So our church priorities must reflect what will continue past this temporary expression of church and ministry into eternity. We ought not to be too caught up with everything being just so. What lasts forever? It's not going to be our programs and our ministries or our budgets or our buildings, our well-crafted services, the worship music, having the sermon be just right every single word. That stuff is good and it matters, but it is temporary only as much as it will eventually lead to eternal change. It will be our desire to see all people come to Jesus in childlike faith, even if it is messy, even if it goes against the flow of religious norms of our time. Are we interacting with people like that personally and together as a church? Spent the past few days uh, going to some extra EMC meetings. Uh, We had our 
our biannual um, EMC ministerial on Friday and the EMC conference council on Saturday. And as we gathered together as a ministerial on Friday, the conference pastor, Andy Woodworth, gave us an exercise about if some hypothetical people would be accepted in our church. Three different case studies, if you will. And the first case study was of a young couple with Bible school training and young kids and lots of money to tithe. And we're like, yeah, bring them in, right? Let's go. Well, the second case study was a, was a middle-aged man who was a recent divorcee and a recovering alcoholic, okay? And the third case study was a, a young man that was dealing with gender identity questions and was now identifying as a young woman. Right? Who would feel welcome in your church? Who would feel accepted to begin the journey of holiness that, that lasts forever? And my hope was that all three would find welcome here at Stony Brook Fellowship to, be, to begin that journey of holiness in that childlike faith that is truly more interested in the kingdom of heaven than the niceties of the kingdom of earth. There's a third lesson in Matthew 23 that we can draw out, and that is the fact that hypocrisy is focused on the action where holiness is focused on the heart. We keep reading in Matthew 23, 23. Again, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So what is Jesus saying? I love it. He uses this picture. We, can, we understand the difference between a gnat and a camel. And he's saying, you have dug down so deep into the minuscule actions of keeping the law that you've actually missed the big picture entirely. Because tithing on herbs was an absurd level of detail that revealed the spirit of legalism. Yes, you ought to tithe, but you're so worried about the minutia of the actions that all the things that the, the actions in the law was supposed to represent, you've let fall by the way, wayside. The heart of the law, the spirit of the law was being ignored described here by Jesus as justice and mercy and faithfulness. They were so busy keeping the rules that they forgot why the rules existed in the first place. And this is the danger of legalism in religion, a danger that's still very much at work in our context today. We can be very good at keeping the rules and displaying what we should not do. So you'll hear people say, I might say too, don't get drunk. Don't do it. The Bible says not to. Don't have sex before marriage. It's a bad idea. It's against the rules. Don't gossip. I can quote verses as to why that is a bad idea. But are we so strict and rules-oriented that we forget why these rules are there in the first place? Do we preach and teach and act and encourage to the spirit of the law? Sure, don't get drunk. I believe that is a rule to be kept. But why do we keep it? Because we're called to instead be filled by the Holy Spirit. That's our goal. That's the spirit. Don't have sex before marriage. I believe it will be harmful and, and, and it will, it will um, bring pain into your life. But why? Why? Because we are instead called to pursue intimacy in the covenant of marriage and really throw ourselves into that relationship. That's our goal. It just came to my attention that this past week, Albert and Agatha celebrated 50 years of marriage. 50 years. Yes. <laughs> To which I say, they don't look old enough to be married for 50 years. You get married when you're 13. What's going on? Right? But we want, we want to invest.
invest in lifelong relationships in marriage. That's the goal. So don't gossip, sure. But the reason we don't do that is we want to fight for the unity of our church, just like we talked about last week. Here's the truth. We can keep all of these rules, all of the don'ts, and still never dig into the things we should be doing. You can live your life and never get drunk, and you can always be cold toward the Holy Spirit and not have your life filled by him. You can make sure that you are are saving sex for marriage, and then you can live out that relationship and be distant from your spouse and lose the point entirely. You can make sure that you never gossip, but you also may never engage in other things that protect and, and are designed to build unity in your church. It's not about the rules. It's about the spirit behind the rules. And that's why holiness is focused on the heart. There's a, a really good passage, in, an example in Matthew 12, where Jesus, uh, again, confronts the same issue. Let me read for you the, the first eight verses. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you know what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. There's lots going on here, but I want to draw our attention to that last response of Jesus, where, yes, it was not lawful for the disciples to work on the Sabbath, and by plucking grain, that was a form of work. But Jesus gives the same response that he gave to the Pharisees when he was... um, when he was caught (laughs) eating with tax collectors and sinners in Matthew's house. He, in both instances, quotes Hosea 6.6, where the Lord says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is the heart of God in the law and now in the new covenant with Jesus has always been the same. It's never been the sacrifices. It's never been the blind obedience. It's never been the action. It's always been about cultivating a relationship with God that is highlighted by steadfast love and loyal love. That's what God wants. He wants your heart. He wants you to keep the spirit behind the law. He doesn't want blind obedience. And it's out of this relationship with God that obedience should be evident. And that is our journey of holiness. Well, there's a fourth lesson we can learn in Matthew 23. And that is that hypocrisy is focused on the outside and holiness is focused on the inside. Very similar but slightly different to what we just talked about. Picking up in Matthew 23, 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So hypocrisy is full of of this focus on the outside. It's all about keeping up appearances. You clean the outside of the cup, you whitewash the tomb. 
Well, this whitewashing of the tomb wasn't just about appearing beautiful, even though that's something that Jesus highlights in his teaching. There was a, a, a practice with this that was all about being ceremonially clean. The reason these tombs were whitewashed is many of the tombs in Israel of that day were just um, uh, kind of buried in the, in the cleft of a rock where they would dig out part of that rock and then that would create a tomb. And they would be all over the place, especially along roadsides. And just before every major festival where many people were making the pilgrimage towards Jerusalem, uh, others would go and they would whitewash the tombs with lime to highlight where the tombs were. Because if you got too close to a tomb and if you touched it unknowingly, you'd be ceremonially unclean, which wouldn't be a sin, but then wouldn't allow you to enter the temple gates to do whatever festival you were there to do. And so this was a warning of something that was unclean. And so you would do something to the outside to warn people of this uncleanness on the inside. And so Jesus is making this distinction. Don't just do something on the outside. It's the inside that truly matters. That's what makes you clean or unclean. And I think talking about this idea of having a cup that's not clean on the inside, well, that makes sense to me because we have this dishwasher does a pretty good job. But sometimes... If there's too full, then the things on the top rack don't always get clean the way that they should. A few weeks ago, we were hosting Marcus and Tia Fast, and I found out that Marcus is another brother who loves coffee. And they're like, all right, we're going to have coffee together. This is going to be great. And I had to find the right mug for him. I'm like, not the prof mug, because he went to SBC. He won't like that. Maybe this will be a good mug. And I take it, and I'm about to bring it to him. And I'm like, I should just double check. And I look inside, and I'm like, <gasps> I can't serve him that mug. It was gross inside. It was, was not clean. So I gave it to him anyway. I'm just kidding. I did not. I got you a clean. Because we know it would be absurd to serve a guest coffee in a cup that was clean on the outside but not clean on the inside. Of course, we would never consider doing that. And our hypocrisy and holiness, the distinction between the two, and our holiness, we should never want to do that either. But it is a real temptation to keep up appearances in the church to make sure that by the time you get through those doors, you look like you have it all together. No, no mind what happened during the week, how many times you fell down or, or yelled at someone or, or did something you claimed you'd never do again and felt the shame of it. No matter how crazy or chaotic it was just to get your kids to church that morning, the goal is by the time I step through those doors, I want people to feel like we have it all together. But that's not the goal. That's not what Jesus wants. That's not what the church needs. That's not part of the journey of holiness. It's actually a spirit of hypocrisy because our journey on holiness is now focused instead on the inside. We can draw our attention right back to 2 Corinthians 7. We've read this once already, but it also brings this point to bear. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body, the outside, and spirit, the inside bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is what God is doing. He is cleansing us. He is purifying us. He is making us holy from the inside out. This means that Jesus needs to do his transforming work at the core of who we are because we can never get to this level on our own. We are not capable of doing this inside work on our own. It needs to be the work of Jesus that then pours out into our lives. But the inside matters. And Jesus drills this into his followers during the Sermon on the Mount, where he'll say, don't just avoid adultery, this outward action, but instead, don't even have lustful thoughts. Take care of the inside. Don't just avoid murder, good advice, which is an outward action, but don't live in anger, which is taking care of the inside. And of course, we can't do this deep transformational work on our own. 
Holiness is a process of Jesus' work in our lives. I love the way that it's put in Philippians 1.6. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, being God, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God has done something for you and in you. He is transforming you and he's continuing to do that. It is his work in your life that makes this inside difference. But why ought you to consider giving church a second chance? Not just because we acknowledge our imperfections, but because holiness is designed to be completed in the church. This is where this process is carried out. Not just between you and God, but in the context of church. We have one example in the, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 22. This again has the context of how Jesus is our high priest and how he allows us to, to enter into God's presence and a relationship with him. And in that context, the author of Hebrews says this to the church. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are called to, to be made holy by Jesus by helping each other out in that process, by stirring up one another to love and good works, by encouraging each other so that when we fall, there is someone there to pick us up and to spur us on as we want, run this race of holiness. Uh, last year, my son Eli was running cross-country for the first time and the last time in school. <laughs> His friends were doing it, and then he realized it just ain't any fun, right? So... Uh, we went to one of his track meets, and there's two places where we really wanted to be uh, right by the track. One was at the starting line, so we could see him run off as fast as he can with a grin on his face, thinking this was going to be the best thing ever. And the next place we wanted to be is the finish line, where he comes ragged around that corner, and just everything in him wants to stop. And that's the moment where we want to be there, where he can see us, and he can hear us, and we call him by name. You can do it. You can finish this race. Here's your friend in front of you. <laughs> Beat him to the finish line. You can do it. We need that encouragement. And running like that is so much harder when no one is there to see you, to recognize you, to call you by name, and to spur you on. Our pursuit of holiness, as imperfect as it is, is designed to be done in church. Jesus does this work, and he asks the church to be a part of it. But there is one final way in which I think we unpack how powerful church can be in our journey of holiness and to guard against hypocrisy. And this is going to be found in James 5.16, which is another passage we read together at the very beginning of November. And again, here, this is the backdrop of praying for healing, both uh, physical and spiritual healing. And this is what James says to the church in 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So what do we need to do? What is, what is one of the best ways that we can ensure that our imperfections are not us falling into hypocrisy, but are instead still this pursuit of holiness? The, the reality is, the one best thing that we can do is to confess, not just to God, but confess to one another. That's what James says. James doesn't just say, go to a, a private place in, the, in your own home and silently and secretly confess all your sins to God. 
Now, should we confess our sins to God? Yes, the Bible declares that we are to do that, but it doesn't say that that is where confession ends. James says, I also want you now to confess your sins to one another. Because the reality is that if we go into this dark corner and the secret corner of our house and of our hearts and of our homes, and if we just say to God, God, I'm sorry about this, then, then all of our sin and our shame and our brokenness can stay in the dark. It never, it never has to be brought to light. And when it stays in the dark, our human nature often serves us to that. We will say, I'll never do this again. And then we find ourselves coming right back to it. And then we confess to God in secret again. And then we circle right back and we, we confess to God again. And we see this sin cycle in our lives. And God knows because he has, he has knit you together. He has designed you not only in, in, in your own life, but also together as community. He knows that it is powerful when we bring these things out of the dark and into the light by confessing to one another. It is a powerful and difficult discipline to have in our lives. And if there is a way that we can embrace holiness and resist hypocrisy, it is to become a confessing church. Now, am I going to put up a confessional booth in my office in the ministry center? Maybe. I think I'd be really good at preaching exactly the sermons I need to preach if I knew exactly what was going on in your life, right? But you're sitting there, you're thinking, well, I'll confess, but pastor, you're on the very bottom of that list of people that I want to confess to. And you know what? That is okay. This is not where we all just blurt our confessions out to everybody on a Sunday morning. This is not where necessarily you have to go to the pastor, like somehow my office is this, uh, just <laughs> creates this ability for it to go straight to God. No, I want you to find at least one at least one, but maybe only two or three other people that you can share everything with, that you trust, and that, that they trust you. And you can share with one another and confess with one another and stir one another up to love and good works in this pursuit of holiness. Be a confessing church. Find someone or some people in your life that you confess to. For me, that's been my discipleship group. I have two other guys in this church, and they are those that I can share uh, the hardest things with. They are those that I can share my, my brokenness and my sin and my shame with. And I trust them not to broadcast that far and wide. And in return, they share with me. And it doesn't have to be a formal discipleship group that we do encourage uh, groups of three or four men and three or four women to get together to, to create this type of, of honesty and authenticity to confess and to trust one another. But it could be an existing friend in this church or in a different church. It could be the case where you come to me and say, Pastor, I don't have anyone in my life that I can do this with. And I will help you find someone that fits this bill. But if we want to know what the difference is between hypocrisy and holiness, confession is the practice that will make the one single biggest difference. Because holiness matters. This isn't to say, well, we can never be perfect, so why do we try? The world is watching, and it needs to see imperfect people who are seeking perfection, who are relying on Jesus to transform us from the inside out, who are, who are not perfect but are focused more on others than self, who are focused more on the kingdom of heaven than the kingdom of earth, who are focused more on the spirit behind the law than the blind obedience and legalism, and who, who seek to be transformed from the inside out by admitting mistakes, by asking forgiveness, and providing that for one another. Let's bow our heads and pray. Jesus, we know that all of this that we talked about today is only possible through what you have done for us. That you are our holiness. That you are our great high priest. 
that you allow us to be this holy people of God, that we can come into your presence, the presence of the holy God, only because of what you've done. So Lord, may all of our thoughts and our response to what's been said here start with trusting in you and receiving your mercy and forgiveness and this gift of a relationship with God. And may we be a people who can live this out in church, this process of holiness, by relying on you, by confessing to you, by relying on one another and confessing to each other, and by seeking your work to complete us this day that one day when you return, we will be found complete in you. And may the watching world see not hypocrisy, but honest humility and forgiveness and confession. We pray this in your name. Amen.